Welcome back to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Today I'm here with Mark Rowe, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at McMaster University, who was awarded one of the AAR Individual Research Grants, and he's here to speak to us about his project, Female Priests in Japanese Temple Buddhism. Congratulations, and thanks for joining me, Mark. Thank you, Christian. It's my pleasure. To set us up, I think a lot of people, when they hear Buddhism, probably have one understanding of what that might be. Temple Buddhism, what you do your research on more generally, I think is something very different. So could you start us off a little bit about contemporary Japanese Buddhist practices, how temple practice might differ based on things like sect or regions mm-hmm. or economic realities? What, what happens here? Okay, well, I think the first thing people need to understand is that temple Buddhism in Japan is a family business. Um, there are approximately 70, 75,000 temples in Japan, uh, twice as many, almost twice as many temples as convenience stores, people are uh, fond of pointing out. Um, and in the majority of those temples are run by a temple priest who has a family, uh, Japanese Buddhist priest Mary. Uh, and they have children. They also drink sake and eat delicious food, which is great for the ethnographer. <laughs> um, but so you know, this idea of you know Buddhist priests in remote snow-covered temples striving for enlightenment, um, although still quite popular throughout the world, is not really accurate. Uh, most priests are born in temples, uh, raised and trained primarily by their father. Uh, and then go and do some amount of training and some amount of austerities. But um, once they return to take over the family temple, you're not seeing a lot of, let's say, meditation practice or, uh, quote-unquote, striving for enlightenment. Uh, Basically, they turn to the business of running the temple. And the primary social role of temples and religious role of temples in Japan is to deal with the dead. So burials, memorial services are all or are primarily done through temples, and most temples have uh, a graveyard uh, uh, within its within their precincts. So uh, this idea, uh, we, what we call funerary Buddhism, is the norm uh, for Buddhism in Japan, um, and unfortunately, I think people still have this kind of idealized version. Of, of Buddhism in Japan in their minds that, that associates primarily with Zen uh, and, and sitting Zen. Uh, the Zen schools in Japan are not the most popular. Um, and for most Japanese, their relationship to their local temple comes through, you know, someone in the family dying uh, and regular memorial services for uh, ancestors, parents, grandparents. Um, so that's what we mean when we talk about temple Buddhism. It's, an, it's a general term to include the seven major schools of Japanese Buddhism, um, as opposed to some of the newer religions that derive, that might derive from Buddhist groups. That's, that's a general overview. There's been a growing body of scholarship on women in Buddhism, but it's, it's mo- almost exclusively focused on nuns. And you're, you're looking at a different group of people. Can you talk about who the women in your study are Before I do that, I'll just back up a bit and talk about the project I'm doing now, um, which is called Biographies of Non-Eminent Monks. Uh, There are famous collections uh, from from China 
over a thousand years or more ago that collect stories of very famous exemplars of the Buddhist tradition and these are called biographies of eminent monks and you find monks who light themselves on fire um, to prove their faith, monks, a monk who uh, pulls out his own internal organs and offers them to thieves so that the thieves will not take them from village children. And you have these incredible stories of these incredibly pious um, monks. Um, so I'm kind of playing on that in my new project, which I'm calling again Biographies of Non-Eminent Monks, in which I focus on just regular, I'm calling them priests, because you know they marry and have families, um, but on the regular everyday priests, not on these famous exemplars of the tradition, uh, who have largely been the focus of Buddhist studies uh, up to this point. And um, a couple of years ago, I was in Japan and did extensive interviews for that project. And what I realized while I was doing it was that there was a small but very significant, I felt, group of female priests. Um, and I had initially planned to, you know, to talk about the female priests within that non-eminent monks project. And I still plan to include some of their stories there. But it also hit me at a certain point that... Um, their stories are so powerful and so well told that they really deserve, I think, their own book uh, and their own project. So the Non-Eminent Monks project will be thematic and discuss kind of key issues uh, in the life and times of regular Buddhist priests. And some of those will be uh, women, female priests. But this project, in contrast, will be, I think, more extended life histories of probably, I'm thinking between eight to ten female priests. Um, I will also do, I'm doing extensive interviews, thanks um, in part to the, the grant I received from AAR, and I will do extensive interviews on thematic topics, but I also then want to focus down on, you know, as I say, eight to ten specific stories, and really, rather than just talk using their voices for thematic issues, to really see the ways in which uh, Buddhism gender, uh, family play out across their lives. So what did you accomplish during your trip this past summer? Well, I had, um, you know, optimistically suggested I would conduct 60 interviews. Um, I did around 30, um, which I still feel pretty good about. <laughs> and I'm planning to go back uh, next spring to continue. Um, I'm also using the AAR grant and the research I did with it um, as a springboard to apply for um, a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, or SHRC grant, a five-year grant, um, to extend the project, because I think it really deserves um, an extended, in-depth uh, study. But, um, so I was, I was very happy with the interviews I completed last summer. Um, there are so many stories, it's hard to, to pick one. Um, Oftentimes what you find with these female priests, and I should point out, okay, so there are about, let's say, over 300,000 licensed Buddhist priests in Japan, and roughly half of them are female. But within the different schools of Buddhism, on average, you see 1% to 2% only um, as abbots of temples, as leading temples. Um, most of the female priests are temple wives, uh, or temple daughters, or temple sisters. Uh, also born into temples, but not expected to run them, but certainly expected to help out with them. 
Um, I should put in a plug um, for a book that's going to be coming out hopefully in a year or two by Jessica Starling at Lewis and Clark. She's looking at um, True Pure Land Temple Wives um, in Japan, and that will be an excellent study. I've, I've seen much of it, and it looks very good, um, about kind of the wives of priests. And unlike Jessica, I'm looking more at the actual at, at women who take over temples, and what we find is that the women who are taking t- over temples are not were never planning to do so. Um, they often have to do it. Say their husband dies while they while while being the abbot, or you um, say the brother dies. So, for example, there's a, a temple in urban Tokyo, um, and the woman I spoke to is now the abbot of the temple, but until 46, she had no, had nothing, even though she had been born in that temple, she had nothing to do with Buddhism at all. Um, her brother ran the temple and died rather suddenly in his 40s. And there was a lot of pressure on her to take over the temple, um, primarily because the family name was known. And it's generally the case that parishioners would rather have someone they know than having someone else come in from the outside to run a temple. And so this woman at 46, you know, uh, as she told me in her younger days, she was the head of a biker gang. Hmm. (laughs) Um, I'm not allowed to say the name of the gang right now, but (laughs) uh, it's quite well known. I I, I put it out in a few places in Tokyo and people kind of gasped. Um, And, you know, so she, by her own words, by her own admission, she was a very bad seed, Um, you know, she worked in a leather store, uh, selling leather jackets uh, in a mafia-run store. Uh, she then um, worked in a veterinarian's hospital and did various things like that until. And she also survived cancer um, and a hysterectomy. And at 46, was suddenly asked to take over this temple. And you know, she did it. She got up early and went to a local temple uh, to be trained in how to chant sutras and how to conduct rituals. Uh, She went through the official training of the sect. um, And now she's running this temple just on her own. Um, She tells a wonderful story of going to the training center in Kyoto. And um, because when you enter the training monastery, you have to list anything that you're taking in. And she had some hormonal treatments because of the hysterectomy. And while she's being interviewed by the, the top priest there, um, he starts shouting at her, telling her she's lying. Uh, because she's told him he, she's, she's cured of cancer, but he's looking at the list of things she's bringing in and saying she's sneaking in medicine. And this turns into a huge fight, and she, he ends up just yelling at her and calling her a liar. Um, you know, and she's just sitting there going, how can they do this? I, you know, I had my own life. I didn't want to come and do all this training at middle age and try and take over a temple. Um, and here I have this old guy yelling at me. Actually, it was a wonderful moment uh, in the interview because uh, I find a lot of times in interviews when someone's about to say something to me that they think is um, kind of risque or that they think would surprise me, they make this gesture where they put their hand over the microphone. You know, I've got the little... IC recorder on the table and they put their hand over it um, as if to block it. Uh, It took me a while to realize they don't actually want me to turn it off. They're just trying to indicate to me that they're about to say something surprising. Um, So as she's telling me about this priest who, you know, who shouted at her and called her a liar, um, she looks at the 
at the recorder on the table. And I remember in my notes, I even wrote, here it comes, because I was sure she was going to put her hand over it. Um, instead, she reared back, puffed out her chest, and yelled his name into the recorder three or four times, uh, and then proceeded to call him all kinds of names. Um, so obviously, it was somewhat cathartic for her, and she was still carrying a grudge these years later. And there's no surprise why. I mean, as, as she said herself, she wasn't expecting to do this. They asked her to do it. Um, and then they have the temerity to kind of accuse her of lying when all she's trying to do is, is stay healthy so that she can run the temple. Mm. Um, and I think it indicates, you know, one of the profound truths facing a lot of these, these women is that, you know, unlike the sons, you know, especially firstborn sons who are born in the temple and expected to take over and raised from a young age to take over, a lot of these women, you know, are taking over later in life without that expectation and without not only without much support from the institution but sometimes act you know active opposition um, and so they provide a really unique view of the tradition um, certainly they in many ways their Buddhism is indistinguishable from the Buddhism of their male counterparts but they through their experiences through social norms I think they they encounter and see certain limits acting on the tradition, certain areas in which um, control is exerted that their male counterparts don't see, and never not only don't see, never have to see. Um, you know, and when the men are you know talking up a storm and drinking and carrying on, they're often there observing quietly um, and paying attention. So I find that their insights are profound and unique and usually very eloquently expressed. Um, and this is a big reason why I've decided to focus on them for this project. What would a day in the life of a, a female priest look like? Okay. Um, much like her male counterpart, she would get up early, um, conduct morning services in, in the main hall, in front of the main altar. Um, she might do... Um, so there'll be a list of memorial dates uh, for that day uh, of temple parishioners and she will offer prayers on their behalf um, she, depending on the size of the temple and how much help she has uh, she might uh, then do some cleaning um, if as is often the case she's also she's a mother see the the, the male abbots um, just have to do the priestly work which is a lot of work I don't mean to downplay it there's a lot to do um, as the female head priest will tell you, uh, the male priests have it easy because all they have to do is the priestly work, whereas the female priests um, also have to take care of the family. So if she has a family, she might also be getting children ready for school. Um, but just if we're just focusing on the Buddhist side, on the temple Buddhist side of things, um, she would do services. Um, it, Maybe she's received a call and there's been a death and she has to attend uh, a wake and set up a funeral um, that day or the next day. She might also be meeting with parishioners during the day. Um, she might get requests to perform memorial services. Depending on the region and the school of Buddhism, uh, she might be doing um, visits to various parishioner households to do prayers at their home altars and she'll also be doing the books and the paperwork for the temple 
Um, and she'll be fretting over an aging population, a loss of temple parishioners, and agonizing over ways to get um, people to come into the temple um, because she's worried that with a drop in parishioner numbers that the temple won't be able to survive. Um, some of these temples, actually a significant number, require the head priest to also have a job because he or she cannot be supported simply by temple income. Um, and others might be um, have other licenses in addition to the straight, uh, straight priestly license. They might be um, professional sermonizers. Um, one way to supplement temple income is to become a professional sermonizer. Um, the title varies depending on the school of Buddhism, but um, and then you would travel and give sermons in other temples or at the main sect or even in more public venues. Now it seems implicit in your overall project in this with the female priest in particular seems to be getting at this relationship between perhaps idealized versions of doctrine versus mm. uh, the realities of everyday practice. Right. What do you think you're trying to say about this relationship between uh, normative or canonical texts and then practice uh, that are identified as Buddhist? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, um, when I'm giving lectures or even teaching undergrad classes, I like to show, you know, there's some, there are a number of websites that go around to McDonald's or Arby's or Burger King and they get, they order a Big Mac and then they take a picture of it and put it next to the professional advertising picture of a Big Mac. So you get to see the ideal and the reality. Yeah. Um, and this is my kind of analogy for, well, religious studies more generally, but certainly Buddhist studies. You know, we like to focus on that idealized version. And it is not my position that we have to replace that idealized perfect hamburger with the one, you know, that kind of floppy, gross thing that we get at the store. Um, it's, I'm, I'm not saying we replace one with the other. It's more if they're side by side, that where I do my work is, is between those two spaces. It, you know, the temple is, does not represent that, you know, you won't find that idealized Buddhism that you see in the sutras at the temple. But that idealized version still plays out and is still sought after and is still a, you know, a very powerful discourse within that local temple. And so it's not so much picking one over the other or replacing a focus on doctrine with ethnography of temples so much as seeing, as you say, the way in which doctrine actually plays out in people's lives. And so I, one of the ways I talk about it is in terms of decentering doctrine. I don't want to take doctrine out of the story, but I want it to share the stage with other equally important factors in temple life. Um, and I think there's an interesting parallel there to a focus on female priests. In the same way that I don't, I want to decenter doctrine. I also want to look at a temple Buddhism where um, the head priest is decentered, or or male priests are decentered. Um, what does it look like? Uh, when the head priest is female. Um, and what you find, what I find when I'm doing ethnography is, you know, doctrine is something that's really surprisingly hard to get at. It's not something you can really question directly. I mean, if you just ask, you know, what do you believe? What's your faith? Or what do you think about this text? You know, you'll get fairly standard closed off answers. I find 
that I'm more fascinated by the ways in which doctrine plays out in more subtle ways, in just the casual analogies that priests use, the metaphors they evoke that aren't necessarily canonical in any way, but still evoke stories um, and parables that we all know. And so I'm very interested in those kind of subtle ways that doctrine plays out. And I think gender is a similar kind of thing that can't be interrogated directly. You kind of have to come at it bleakly and it it plays out in more subtle ways. I mean, some, um, I'm sorry, sometimes it's not very subtle at all. But I'm also interested in the ways it just plays out and, and emerges in longer kind of non-directed conversations uh, in casual ways. And so I'm, I, you know, it's still too early to say for sure, but I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, a focus on gender in this project might have something to say about how we look at doctrine ethnographically. Well, Mark, it sounds like an excellent project. I, I wish you continued luck as you move forward, and uh, congratulations on your AAR award. Thank you so much, Christian. It was a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs>